Welcome back to Hanging with History. This is Season 1, That Miracle That Happened, That One Time. And this is Episode 127, Social Norms and Entrepreneurs in the Industrial Revolution. Okay, now, Joel Mokier's Enlightened Economy has a long discussion of social norms, what they are, formal versus informal, some historiography, and so on. It's, it's a really good read. But I've decided this is too big a topic for an episode, and I don't want to do an arc on it yet. So, so this discussion will be on social norms as relating to entrepreneurs. The institutional framework that the Industrial Revolution is embedded is one in which private enforcement of the law predominates. So please listen carefully, because this is very, very different from the modern world. Catching thieves, prosecuting crime, is a private matter. Roughly 80% of crimes prosecuted were prosecuted by the victims of the crime. There were 450 private associations for prosecuting crime established between 1744 and 1856. JPs are appointed, but an unpaid volunteer activity. You do it for the glory and because it's expected of someone of your social class. The first magistrates to receive stipends were in London in 1792. A parish might have a constable and an assistant constable, maybe, but otherwise there's no police force. We mentioned those were first established by Robert Peel in the 1840s, the Bobbies, the Peelers, though the Bow Street Runners were established before that. And generally, we do see a lot of movement for enforcement of justice from the private sector to the public sector, after the Second Hundred Years' War ends in 1815. So that's what people are thinking would be a good idea, but not during the earlier period of the Industrial Revolution. So rather than a closely policed society, Britain had to rely on social norms or voluntary self-policing of behavior. It's kind of funny that Hobbes, who argued for a strong state, was really the citizen of a state that ruled with a light hand. And the Hobbesian view that third-party law enforcement was essential was gradually disproven. There was a small claims court called Courts of Conscience, about which, quote, the small claims courts of conscience significantly were highly unpopular among working people who objected to the way they dealt with tallies run up in alehouses, a telltale sign they were highly effective, unquote. I like that. And of course, there's always the potential that a JP could have you whipped or fined severely if you were of the middling sorts or even sent to Australia in rare cases or even hung in a very few cases. And though there were capital penalties for a huge number of offenses called the bloody codes, but JPs, knowing that they themselves would be judged both by Jesus, I suffered torture and gave my life for the poor. What did you do? and their own social circles, seldom enforced laws as harshly as they could. Although the numbers are squishy and doubtful, capital punishment was probably, or maybe I should say possibly, 90% less than most of the continent. Yeah, 90% less, maybe. That's some general context. Now let's talk about how entrepreneurs treated each other. Occasionally, you'll see this all reduced to reputation, which was certainly important. I mean, we've seen Quakers being sought after business partners because of their reputation for probity. 
We've heard Daniel Defoe's quotes on credit where a tradesman can get better terms than a prince if he be of good reputation. And remember, there was a shortage of specie to settle transactions during this whole time. There was also a shortage of small bills in paper money. Parliament was still fearful of paper money. There was a lot of unsettled back-and-forth receivables and payables between tradesmen and entrepreneurs. To the extent one can argue that the gold and silver fines of California and Nevada allowed the global system of the 19th century to persist much longer than it otherwise could. So what mattered most is the notion that debts would eventually be settled. But stepping back, there was a broader ideology that the law constrained everyone, including the upper elites, to a great degree. Even if you didn't believe that all were equal under the law, you know, not really, not completely, that was, but that was the principle often stated, you believed that the real situation was close enough for business to operate safely. And you would believe this mainly because you could see around you that it was true. So the criminal justice system for the entrepreneur is just a system of last resort, as is still true. Quote, had moral codes been less respected and cultural beliefs been less cooperative, the worlds of credit and commerce would have disintegrated rapidly, unquote. We discussed Samuel Oldno last episode, a major tycoon owned and operated all sorts of mines, quarries, commercial operations, biggest man at his part of the Midlands. When he dies in 1805 and all the amounts, payables and receivables are settled, he had only a modest net worth. So there was a lot of owed back and forth, and only the truly recalcitrant who owed more than two pounds could be subject to debtor's prison. Fraud, using somebody else's money without their approval, writing bad checks, that was a death penalty offense. And from Samuel Johnson's biography, he spent a lot of time visiting prisons to pay with poor souls who were destined for the noose. He sympathized with them, but never seriously questioned the issue of holding high standards of probity. He was quite clear that a commercial nation required this to function. So, long quote here. The formal institutional structure and cultural norms thus reinforced one another in creating an environment in which economic activity could take place with a minimum reliance on formal legal means. Unquote. It goes on to make a giant point, this is really important now, about how a civil economy functions. This is especially important for those listeners who live in what would conventionally be described as a low-trust society. And I'm asserting that 18th century Britain solved a problem you are living with. Uh, reach out to hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com to discuss further. Quote, the enforcement of property rights through private institutions reflects something deep and supremely important about British institutions in the 18th century. The culture of respectability and gentility helped solve the standard collective action problems that bedeviled the production of public goods. The emergence of a plethora of networks, clubs, friendly societies, academies, and associations created a civil society in which private provision of public goods became a reality and created what might be called a civil economy. What was true for property rights enforcement was true for other projects, for which elsewhere in Europe the state had to play a major role. Uh, roads, harbors, bridges, lighthouse, river navigation, drainage works, canals were initiated through 
private subscriptions. And public art, too. In some cases, there was hope of making a profit, but commonly the entrepreneurs were motivated by the desire to improve local trade and employment. This means infrastructure improved faster because it did not need central coordination. Canals and turnpikes needed an act of parliament to solve the property rights issue, but these were funded charitably in the main. And not just the physical transportation infrastructure, but hospitals, schools, orphanages, prosecution societies, charitable relief, canal and turnpike trusts were often funded by voluntary groups. Another quote, the whole thing of capitalists copying the ethics of the upper class, keeping their word, paying their debts, pretending mutual respect, quote, for a long time, it was believed that the mixture of gentility and capitalism was a hindrance to economic growth. People had an idea stuck in their heads of gentlemen as useless drones. It's like uh, as if life is really like a P.G. Woodhouse novel, which, I mean, obviously some gentlemen are useless drones, but it was more an ideal behavior that entrepreneurs strove to emulate. As a lot of painstaking work demonstrates the following, quote, gentlemanly capitalism can be seen as a way in which opportunistic behavior, meaning predatory behavior, was made so taboo that in only a few cases was it necessary to use formal institutions to punish deviance, unquote. So money grubbing had to be hidden. It was a secret part of the soul. Instead, it was vital to be, quote, trusted in the locality and to have standing in the community, unquote. The importance of trust in economic activity is pretty widely accepted, Obviously, crime creates costs, and if it's necessary to monitor potential malfeasance and cheating by people you deal, that you deal with, how do you ever get anything done? At a social monkey level, we might say trust requires costly signaling. So how you dress, where you live, what clubs you're in, what charitable activities do you support, all indicate social class. And as we've seen, signaling interest in science was a less costly way to signal. One pound per man half a pound per woman to attend a lecture. The children's education was also vital because accents can be a strong social signal. So trust operated on an intra-firm basis also, so inside the company. Remember, I talked about how a combination of skills was and is often very good at making an individual formidable. Well, within firms, there were seldom entrepreneurs skilled at both the technology and the business management. And we discussed this part too, so let me just quote Mokir again. Entrepreneurial success was based less on multi-talented geniuses than on successful cooperation between individuals who had good reason to think they could trust one another. Even at that level, the classical principles of division of labor and comparative advantage held, unquote. So partnerships were the dominant firm structure for a long time, partly because from the 1720s, chartered companies were illegal without act of parliament. So in the field of economics, for the last couple of decades, there's been a lot more research and emphasis on trust and values. Just think of McCloskey's trilogy on bourgeois values. But is this just an academic fad? Did Dickens just invent his villains? I mean, obviously not. There would be some bad apples, as the need for the term attests. But they were few enough that, in general, you could deal with total strangers for things like buying and selling and exchanging. For more involved interactions, local reputation, and introductions 
from mutually trusted parties were sufficient. And this created a pressing need at the individual level to develop and keep a good reputation, to appear trustworthy. The anxieties around this need were the focus of a lot of German sociology in the early 20th century. You might even assert that academic sociology was born to deal with these anxieties. Norms shifted from the idea of a gentleman without occupation, generous and not driven by greed, someone who could therefore be trusted not to take sides, a new kind of gentleman, someone who worked but could be trusted because he would not, whatever the temptation, behave in a predatory manner. I hesitate to bring this up, but people do get confused about the difference between competition and cooperation. And was the British economy about free market competition? If your business was preferred over another's and they lost their market to you, that was okay, and that was harmful to the loser. Well, free market competition is a form of cooperation. In that market, no one is using force, not against each other, not on competitors, not on customers, and lying will cause everyone to turn against you. Since the customer base is too diffuse to trick, it's almost never better to deceive with the possible exception of when the government is your customer or the church is. Whenever a society can use reputation as a powerful force, you get behavior considered excellent within the society. In the lower class arc, we saw people go through hell when they defied social norms or were believed to. Especially in the arena of romance, gossip could be very dangerous, practically deadly. We followed the lives of three persons who had very much broke social norms, defected, as they say, in game theoretical terms. All these people felt that they either suffered a loss of reputation that cost them dearly for the rest of their lives, or they moved away to completely restart their lives away from those who knew of their shame. One risk to innovation that was a risk to life in most of the world for most of time was to encroach upon realms reserved for the deity or the divine, or to challenge the established church. But starting in the 16th century, Britain took another approach with Bacon, Boyle, and Newton formalizing it and getting wide agreement and approval. The idea was nature made sense. It could be understood. So, it could be mastered for the material benefit of mankind. Unquote. Mokir subtly brings up Hume here without specifically mentioning the great philosophical debate, the terror Hume caused to would be intellectual totalitarians like Kant and Hegel and Heidegger and Marx. No, Mokir gives the names in order Bacon, Newton, and Hume, ending with a quote from Hume quote, The proper office of religion is to regulate the hearts of men humanize their conduct, infuse the spirit of tolerance, order, and obedience, unquote. Oh, th so this is why I'm going to do a mini-arc on what is usually perceived as a philosophical debate between followers of Newton and the Dutch glass grinder Spinoza. And I, I really appreciate Mokir framing this as a David Hume versus Immanuel Kant debate. David Hume is downstream of Newton, and Immanuel Kant is downstream of Spinoza. I was just reading Jonathan Clark's book on historiography and postmodernism, and he had a long chapter on English exceptionalism versus German exceptionalism, the last chapter of our shadowed present. 
And it would have been, oh, much better if he'd considered the twists and, and, and more profoundly the obfuscations authoritarian philosophy had to make to cover up the fact that they had an authoritarian philosophy as contrasted with Hume's libertarianism. Authoritarians wish to preserve the daydream, the one where you imagine making laws or institutions or educating the children that will make the world a much better place. The, the beauty of Kant is real, but his obfuscations are necessary to save the Rousseauian daydreams of authoritarians. There is this sense where Adam Smith is the Newton of social science and Rousseau is the anti-Newtonian twin of it. And what did Ayn Rand say about Kant? I think <laughs> I bring this up too often, maybe. It is no coincidence that Eichmann was a Kantian. So you might think I've made a digression, but Mokier makes a point that culture includes the ranking of social priorities, the ranking of prestige, the ranking of respect. It creates an invisible hierarchy that draws the young, and we care about where the most ambitious and talented young people go. It matters because they are the ones who define the future. And 18th century British culture vastly increased the prestige of those involved in the rational fields, inventors and engineers, right? In other cultures, generals, priests, rabbis, bureaucrats were higher prestige. Bacon was the one to elevate inventors to the highest level of respect, and Newton became the thinking person's ideal in Britain. So that was the direction of the cultural bias. The timeline uh, Bacon publishes in the 1620s. Bacon's ideas are taken up in the 1640s. Not, immediate, not immediately. He achieves hero status by 1650s. There's the Hartlib circle then. There's Hook, Boyle's public lectures. Newton publishes in 1689. And by the 18th century, the youthful ideal begins to change more broadly. There are advances all over, and then the textile inventions hit a rapid burst starting in 1760. I mean, it's just one after the other. Steam engines begin to populate the land, growing by a factor of 10 every decade. Edward Jenner and James Watt become folk heroes. Wedgwood, too. Ballooning takes off after 1783. That conquest of gravity thrills the minds of many. Quote, The invention was of little intrinsic economic value but greatly enhanced belief in the capability of technology to do truly remarkable things that mankind had dreamed about for endless generations. So steamships and steam trains are everywhere by the 1840s, and for several decades, the status of the inventor and engineer is fantastically elevated. Britain is recognized as the most advanced nation, much as the moon landings contributed to the 20th century American reputation. In a sense, that period after the 1840s is the real consolidation of the miracle. And there's a tragic element of it, too. Lifestyles which held for hundreds of years were displaced, and there was pollution. More sincerely, there was the German urge to emulate the British, to compensate for their perceived and occasionally admitted inferiority. Comedically, darkly comedically, Heinrich Himmler urging German schoolchildren to eat their porridge, because he believed that the English upper class were raised on it. The sinister part is the stupid, doomed-to-fail naval competition launched post-1900 dreadnought era, which the Germans lose, are destined to lose, really. And that naval arms race dooms Europe to World War I and World War II in the forms it took in our timeline. 
I mentioned the moon landing and, and ballooning. Now, steam power was a similar event. Mokir uses the term salient event. Quote, the first steam engines were large and noisy and alien things. The cultural impression they made was of power over nature. Unquote. They made Watt into a hero, mainly posthumously. Steamships and steam railroads got a great deal of social prestige. They were spectacle enough to be considered salient events. Quote, it was exactly in those years that the technological results of the Industrial Enlightenment were becoming visible to more and more people. Unquote. Mokir says we can see the cultural origins of the Industrial Revolution in the hero worship of people like James Watt and Edward Jenner. Quote, the social respectability of inventors kept rising in Victorian Britain. The changes in the culture gave inventors fame and the respect of a large group of peers, unquote. Of course, we have a hard time quantifying cultural changes. But everyone could see the way James Watt and others were admired. There's a great deal of social monkey power there. And we will end with social monkey power, as we often do. Next, we'll start a three-part arc on the state and its influence on the Industrial Revolution. Okay, we'll figure it out. <laughs> please click subscribe or follow on your podcast app. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend about it. If you don't, please tell an enemy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to discuss anything covered in the episode, please feel free to email me at hangingwithhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Music